Well, good morning, New City. Great to see you here on this rainy Sunday morning after lots of turkey and, and football. Um, hope it was a great holiday for, for you all. Um, and we're going to continue our series in the book of Judges. My name is Gabe. I'm one of the pastors here. If we haven't met, I'd love to meet you after the service. I'll be hanging around up here. I'd love to have a, a conversation, get to know you a little bit. Um, if you haven't been here, let me catch you up today a little bit on the book of Judges and what that's all about. Maybe you've never been in a church that went through the book of Judges as a sermon series. This was my first rodeo uh, with this as well. Um, but the book of Judges is really interesting because it's basically like this Ferris wheel, this cycle that God's people go through. Um, through lots and lots of generations where uh, they remember who God is, their one true king, and then they forget who God is and they kind of go their own way and choose their own way. So then God in his, his mercy, he sends uh, what is known as a judge, but not like Judge Judy, like judge like a little Christ, a little redeemer who enters into their story and reminds them of whose they are and the work that they're to be about in the world. And so they return to him for a little while before eventually forgetting again. And so around and around and around the Ferris wheel goes. And we've been exploring kind of what that cycle of disobedience and sin has looked like through the history of God's people and the various uh, judges, little redeemers that he sends their way. Uh, well, as I was preparing for this message today and I was thinking about kind of this theme of, of forgetting who God is and forgetting who the king is, um, I actually thought about a time when I was 14 years old. And when I was, I was 14, I was the oldest of, of three boys and um, had, a, had a great home that I grew up in. And my dad was the plant manager at, at Lance Cookies and, and Crackers back in the day. So we grew up with a lot of, a lot of peanut butter sandwiches in our, in our house. And uh, I grew up, I was born in 1977. And so I think in the greatest decade that you could have been a kid, the 80s. Anybody with me? The 80s were amazing. In fact, my daughter, who's 15 now, has commented looking upon life in the 80s and said, I think I would have liked to have been a kid in the 80s. And I think she has the right idea. You know, it was a time where you could just be a kid and you could be free. And that was what my childhood was about. And a big part of that was being able to ride my red and black Schwinn bicycle wherever I wanted, almost wherever I wanted. I had kind of this radius of about three miles from my house um, that I was allowed to go. And there was kind of some boundary roads that my parents gave me, but anything in that boundary, I was free to go and ride. And so I could ride my bike to, to shops or up to McDonald's or kind of wherever I wanted to go with my friends. It was a great and glorious time to be alive and to be 14. But there was this one place that was called Alley's that was my favorite place to go. And it was at McMullen Creek Shopping Center. It's no longer there, unfortunately. Um, but it was this like hybrid of an ice cream place and a video arcade because you know for you younger folks out there like this is the day you had to go somewhere to play video games for the most part um, they were on these big giant screens and so I loved going there but it was outside of my boundary of where I could ride my bike and so if I wanted to go I had to like coordinate a ride with mom and dad and so in this particular day I believe it was a Saturday uh, nobody was uh, around to take me and so I decided of my own accord I really wanted to go up there and eat ice cream and play video games and I thought What's the harm? It's like barely outside of the limits, like maybe half a mile longer than I was supposed to go. And besides that, who would find out? I'd be back before they were any the wiser. And so I went. 
And I remember I'm sitting in Owie's eating my ice cream and playing my favorite tank video game when outside of the window, it begins to rain. And then it begins to storm. And then a storm of epic biblical proportions begins to descend upon McMullen Creek Shopping Center. And I started to get incredibly nervous. Oh no, what am I gonna do? It was such a storm, I couldn't even conceive of riding my bike out of there. And so I sat waiting hour after hour for the storm to pass. It began to get dark, the store was about to close. And then I did what I was dreading, the thing that I hoped I would never have to do. I took out the quarter. Anybody remember the quarter? Before cell phones, kids, you had to have a quarter. And there was a pay phone. I put my quarter and I dialed my phone number. And I remember my dad answered the phone. And hello? Yes, dad. Um, I need you to come and get me. Well, where are you, son? Well, I'm at McMullen Creek Shopping Center. Silence on the other end of the line. He hung up the phone. And as I waited in a horrific 15 minutes as a 14-year-old boy waiting for what my father would say, as he pulled up in his grand marquee car, if you remember those, they had the giant trunk. The trunk was so big, my whole bike and probably the whole family could have fit back there. And so he put my bike in the trunk and closed it and we got in the car and rode silently all the way home. And somebody in the first service asked me, said, you know, wonder, when did you get your bike back? Funny ending to the story, I never got my bike back because I was actually 14 and a half. And six months later, I got my learner's permit. I think I forgot, my dad forgot, but that was the last ride on the black and white Schwinn that I ever had, quite a story. But as I think about that story, what I realized is my mistake was I forgot that there was a king in my house and that I wasn't him. I forgot that there was an authority who decided what was right and what was wrong, what the boundaries of my life would look like and that that wasn't me. And when I forgot that and thought, you know, I can just do this little, little bit of a violation, just go a little bit and I won't be found out and nobody will know. And I just made this little error and it cost me dearly. As I think about that story, you know, I think if you multiply that story thousands and thousands and thousands of times, what do you get? You get the book of Judges. You do. One bicycle ride at a time outside of the boundary. But seriously, that's the book of Judges that we've been talking about this meta narrative of a people who forgot that they had a king, a people who forgot that they had an authority, that they weren't the arbiters of right and wrong, that they had a king and a God who told them right and wrong and gave them rules to live by and promised that he would protect them and take care of them, but they forgot him over and over and over again. And so we've been looking at this big story, but today we wanna dive deeper down and look at the smaller stories. What did that look like in the daily lives of those Israelites in the days of the judges, in the days when they forgot that there was a king, in the days they forgot there was a God? As I think about that imagery, I'm reminded of one of those wishing wells that you might have seen at an airport um, or you know, maybe an amusement park. You remember the kind where you put the coin in and it's a giant spiral and your little coin goes on a really fast ride and it goes in concentric circles around and around and around until eventually it falls into the deep dark pit and disappears forever. 
And I think that's what I want to invite you into as we look at chapter 17 and 18 of Judges, because we move from this big narrative of God's people forgetting to this micro narrative of what does this look like in particular stories. And I think it's incredibly powerful because these are stories that we can relate to. And I want to submit to you before we get into the text and start reading the stories that not much has changed. We haven't gone that far Maybe not as far as we think. You know, we we tend to think that we're civilized now, that we've evolved, that we're like actually better people, but we're not at all. That these stories of where people have forgotten God in the small places of their lives are our story too. And so as we read today, I just want you to read with that lens on, not, not reading as an ancient people somewhere far away, but read it as if you're looking in a mirror and saying, you know what, this, this could be me. Maybe this is me that's being talked about in these pages. When I read the text, that's exactly what I felt as I was convicted over and over and over again, that it's not some distant people out there that have forgotten God, it's me who's forgotten God in the small places of my life. And I pay dearly for it every single day that I forget him. We're gonna read through three stories that are kind of this zoomed in picture of what life looks like when we forget who the king is. And that three stories are gonna be a story of a household or a family, the story of a a priest or a a religious system and, and the story of a people or a community. And as we peer into each one of these, I just wanna invite you to awaken your imaginations and, and, and think of it as looking into a mirror because not much has changed and this could easily be stories about you and about me. Well, in the first story, as we zoom in on act one of our little play, we see that there's a story about a man named Micah. And I wanna invite us for this first uh, reading, let's stand together as I read uh, this text about this man named Micah. There was a man named Micah who lived in the hill country of Ephraim. One day he said to his mother, I heard you place a curse on the person who stole 1,100 pieces of silver from you. Well, I have the money. I was the one who took it. The Lord bless you for admitting it, his mother replied. He returned the money to her and she said, I now dedicate these silver coins to the Lord in honor of my son. I will have an image carved in an idol cast. So when he returned the money to his mother, she took 200 silver coins and gave them to a silversmith who made them into an image and an idol. And these were placed in Micah's house. And Micah set up a shrine for the idol and he made a sacred uh, ephod and some household idols. And then he installed one of his sons as his personal priest. Thus ends the reading of God's word. You may be seated. What in the world is going on in this story? We have two characters that we're introduced to. We have this man named Micah. We have Micah's mother. She remains nameless and this is their little household. And, and the plot is basically on the surface seems like maybe actually a good story. It's a story of, of Micah who is a thief. That's not good. But he returns the money to his mother and his mother seems to forgive him. And she seems to want to do something worthy with the money that is returned. And it doesn't seem like there's a lot of re- relational discord in the household after that. So on the surface, we look at this story and, and say, it looks like a pretty nice little story. But the problem is that it's only a veneer. 
that beneath the surface of this story, there's actually deep corruption. And I wanna explore what this corruption looks like for just a moment. First of all, let's look at Micah. What is wrong with what Micah does in the story? Well, the first thing uh, that we need to know is Micah's name actually in Hebrew means who is like Yahweh. If you remember, Yahweh is God's proper name that he revealed to his people. And so Micah is actually named after the true, one true living God. That's who he is. That's his family lineage. So we know that Micah's family at some point along the line was a family of God-fearing, Yahweh-believing people. But we know that they're now living among the Canaanites, among the pagan people. And what we see here is a story of corruption, a story of one family who lives in a culture that doesn't know anything about the one true living God. And that over generations and over years, and we don't know how many, this family who named their very son after the one true God actually has forgotten him. And the first way we know that, that this family has forgotten God is that Micah as a grown man uh, basically embezzles money from his mother. We know that this is embezzlement. This wasn't like stealing 20 bucks. We know that this amount of silver and this time in history was a great deal of wealth. We know this is a wealthy family. So think of it more like the guy cre- commits a felony against his own family and embezzles money. And then the second thing that we notice in the story is that he actually, his heart doesn't really change until he hears that his mother has cursed the thief. She doesn't know it's him, but she curses the thief. And that was a a pagan thing to do. That was a a, a practice that she had adopted from the pagan culture around them to, to level a curse against the thief who's unknown as an attempt to get her money back. And so Micah, also believing in the pagan beliefs of the society at large, uh, sees the curse, doesn't want to be cursed, believes in the curse. That's not biblical. That's not from Yahweh, but that's from the people around him. That's what the people, the Canaanites believed. And so out of fear for being cursed, he returns the money, but his heart never actually changed. We also see that he has great contempt for his mother, that far from honoring his mother, he, he seeks to strip away her wealth and, and rob her of everything that she has. So there's a broken family and a broken situation, but that's not the worst of it. The worst sin isn't actually committed by Micah, but actually by his mother. Because what seems like on the surface of veneer of good, pious generosity, we actually see is incredibly evil and corrupt. Because remember that God's law was that we make no idols, that the people of God don't construct idols You remember right when Moses gets the 10 commandments and he comes down from the mountain, what's the first thing that the people are doing? Creating a golden calf. They're creating an image. Why? Because that was what the Egyptians did. That's what the culture around them did. And they didn't trust the one true living God in what he said. Instead, they did what was comfortable and easy and what the culture around them told them to do. And so we see the same thing repeated here as Micah's mother takes a tradition of the culture around them and she creates this idol, but she blends it with worship of Yahweh, blending it together. We call this syncretism. When we take one set of beliefs over here and one set of beliefs over here and we merge them together. And and instead of one stronger belief, you actually have corruption and the one true belief no longer has its power. Not only that, she takes 200 pieces of silver out of the 1,100, only a small amount, and she has it poured into a tiny idol 
a tiny idol. And then she instructs her son, you know what? You need to set up a temple for worship for this idol. What you need to get out of this story is that this family that believed in the one true living God, that knew who he was, that was from his own lineage, instead of following him, instead of being a light on a hill to the people around them who did not know who Yahweh was, instead they adopt the practices of the people around them, mix them up with the practice of the Hebrews and thereby stripping away the power of the living God in their household. What happens when we forget there's a king? Number one, we forget that we don't determine right and wrong. You see, at the heart of this story, Micah and his mother put themselves in the seat of deciding what is right and what is wrong. And that's corrupt. And we are not the king and we don't determine what is right and wrong. Only Yahweh, the one true God, determines that. What happens when we forget there's a king is that we try to fix our broken lives using powerless strategies. You see, there was a strategy of the culture that just said, you know what, your life is messed up, your son is a thief, you know, here's how to fix it. Here's what you need to worship. And, and while we might get lost in the story that like, well, wait a second, I don't pour silver into idols, I don't do anything like this, just wait just a second because I think we're all tempted to do this very thing. You see, we too are a people in exile. We are God's people, but we're living in a culture who doesn't know anything about the one true living God. And one of our greatest temptations is to take a little bit of God and a lot of the practices of our culture and blend them and mash them up together and on our own decide what is right and what is wrong. And on our own, create these powerless strategies to improve our lives. I don't know what that looks like in your life, but I can tell you some of the things I'm tempted toward in my life. You know, I'm so often tempted to just fix things using money. You know that if I could just get enough wealth, that if I could just get enough financial security, boy, then my life would be made right and all these other problems that I have would go away. But is that the message of the one true God? No, no. God says you can only worship one God. You can't worship money and you can't worship God. That'll be blending things together, just like Micah and his mother. There's lots of ways that we try to create powerless strategies to fix our lives, but they don't work. Well, a commentary on this verse is verse six. As we look at the sixth verse, this is sort of the writer of Judges commenting on the first five verses. He says, in those days, Israel had no king, all the people did whatever seemed right in their own eyes. Now keep in mind, they didn't have a king not because there wasn't one. Now there wasn't on one level, there wasn't a human king, but there was a true king and they knew exactly who he was and they knew his name and they knew his history and he was personal and he was good, but they didn't have a king because they rejected him because they forgot that there was a king and they made their own decisions on what was right and what was wrong. And that's what happened in this little household is this new center of worship uh, is set up. And I think so many of us are tempted to set up our own little centers of worship in our own house, that we come to church and that we, we look like practicing Christians on the outside, but if you dive deeper into our lives and look at our checkbooks and the way we spend our time and our priorities, we see something else. We see that actually we put our faith in all kinds of things other than the living God, because we too forget that there is a king. Well, the story continues with a second act, and the second act 
builds on the first, and I call this the corruption of a priest. And so uh, let me just read you this text. One day, a young Levite who had been living in Bethlehem and Judah arrived in that area. He had left Bethlehem in search of another place to live. And as he traveled, he came to the hill country of Ephraim. He happened to stop at Micah's house as he was traveling through. Where are you from? Micah asked him. He replied, I am a Levite from Bethlehem and Judah, and I am looking for a place to live. Stay here with me, Micah said, and you can be a father and a priest to me. I will give you 10 pieces of silver a year, plus a change of clothes and your food. The Levite agreed to this, and the young man became like one of Micah's sons. So Micah installed the Levite as his personal priest, and he lived in Micah's house. Now check it out. Again, on the surface, we have a story that at face value looks like not bad, right? That these two guys meet, Micah is generous, this guy is in need, and a great arrangement is struck. And he brings him in and he treats him like family. Isn't that amazing? But it's a veneer. Because if we press in beneath the surfaces of the story, there's deep corruption and evil once again. You see, you remember the Levites. This is a young Levite. What was the role of the Levites among the Hebrew people? They were priests, right? They were priests. What's the role of a priest? A, a priest's role is to guide people into the presence of the one true living God, to oversee the ritualistic life, rhythm of life, so that the people don't forget well, instead, we find this priest not where he's supposed to be. Where is he supposed to be? At the temple, or they don't have a temple yet, at the tabernacle in Shiloh. He's supposed to be helping oversee worship in the place where God said, worship me here in this place. So once again, we see the story of a, of a person who's decided they know better than God. And so we find a wandering, shiftless, religious man wandering and he comes across Micah and ah, a perfect union of two opportunists meet. The priest who's not motivated by conviction or a deep love of God or really wanting to serve God's people, what is he motivated by? It's in between the lines of the story. Security, wealth, preference, prestige. Prestige, because it says he's a young man and it says, Micah, who's clearly older, says, come to me and be a father to me. In other words, you're a religious person and you're young, but guess what? Older people can look up to you and listen to what you have to say. And wouldn't that feel good? And so this young priest, motivated by the wrong things, stumbles into this perfect situation, this trap, and instead of correcting Micah and correcting his mother, which is the role of the priest, if he had stumbled into that household and they're conducting pagan worship and they've blended the traditions of Yahweh and the traditions of the pagan culture around them, a priest who's actually following God would see that and bring great conviction upon that household. But instead, this priest, motivated by money and greed and prestige, takes the job offer. And instead of being the one to correct and guide God's people back into his presence, he becomes the leader of a pagan cult and he deepens this cycle of sin. So now the sin isn't just in this one family who made this wrong decision to set up this idol, to set up this new framework of worship. Now we've got a priest who legitimizes the whole thing and presumably invites more people in the community into it. And so we see this spiraling cycle of sin as people have forgotten who the king is. And here's a big takeaway. What happens when we forget there's a king? 
Well, we learn from this priest that instead of chasing God, we chase comfort, wealth, and prestige. You see, idols steal life and they end up crushing our hearts in the end. I wish I could tell you that the story ended there, but it gets worse. The next text is our third scene, and this is not just the corruption of a household, not just the corruption of a priest or a religious system. This time we have the corruption of an entire people group. So I invite you to scene three. I'm just gonna read a couple of verses and kind of fill in uh, the gaps in the story. But to get us there, so you can go back, verse 13 kind of is a, a segue between what happens with the priest and what happens in the next uh, passage with the people in Judges 17, 13. I know the Lord will bless me now, Micah said, because I have a Levite serving as my priest. And I wanted to highlight this verse because I think this is one of the saddest verses in this whole text. Is because not only is, is Micah doing the wrong thing and forgotten that there's a king, he actually has severely misunderstood who the living God is. Instead of seeing the living God as a good God, as a benevolent God, as a forgiving God who forgives thousands and thousands of, of times, instead he thinks that the Lord will bring blessing only if he has this Levite serving among them. And so we see the depth of how much Micah and his household have forgotten who God really is. Tim Keller says this about verse 13. He says, uh, the purpose of his religious efforts is to get access to God so that he can get, to God, get God to do what he wants. The goal of true faith is to give God access to your heart so that he can get you to do what he wants. Religion's true purpose is to get God to serve you. Gospel faith's purpose is to get your heart to serve him. And so that is the biggest, saddest miss in this entire chapter. And don't miss that, friends, because again, this isn't an ancient story far, far removed from us. This could be us. How easy is it for us to engage in empty and hollow veneer religion that we just show up to church week after week after week and we engage in the, all the studies and we do all the activities and we put our smile on when we come here and we, on the surface we act right, but deep down inside we're hollow and we're empty because truthfully we've forgotten there's a king and we've misunderstood the goodness of the true God because if we knew him, we wouldn't forget him. If you've seen him, you can't look away. But in our homes and in our church and in our neighborhoods, we look away all the time, don't we? God help us. We come to this third scene. And I'm just gonna read a couple of verses here now. In those days, Israel had no king. We're reminded once again, not because there wasn't a king, because they rejected the king. And the tribe of Dan was trying to find a place where they could settle, for they had not yet moved into the land assigned to them when the land was divided among the tribes of Israel. So let me fill in a little bit of this story for you. The tribe of Dan, like all the other tribes, was given a piece of land to inherit where God gave them a command to go into this land that he promised he'd be with them. He promised, though it would be scary, that it would require tons of faith that they should go, they should take it, believing that he's good, that believing he's a God who fulfills his promises. But instead, the tribe of Dan, they don't do it. We don't know why from this passage, but they don't do it. Instead, they stay in a place of relative safety. And so now at this moment, 
they decide, you know what, we're gonna, we're gonna strike out and we need some land. We need a place to dwell. But instead of doing it God's way, once again, they forgot that there is a king and what does that mean? They decide to do it their way because they know best as a community. And so in scouting out land, now where are they scouting out land? They're scouting out land in a place that looks really easy to take. Why? Because they're cowards. We're gonna go to a place that doesn't require faith. We're gonna do something that we can just do all on our own accord with the energy and resources that we can see that we have. Does that sound or feel familiar? I'm gonna raise my hand. I'm gonna tell you and confess before you there's been countless times in my own life where I've taken an easy route where I've, I've, I've seen something that God was calling me to do, but you know, that, that's too scary. That required something. That, that might cost me. That might cost me wealth. That might cost me prestige, my reputation. And so I'm not gonna do it. I'm not gonna have that conversation. I'm not gonna step in that move of faith. And so you see the tribe of Dan is like all of us, taking the easy way out. And so in taking the easy way out, they're scouting out the land and they come across Micah and they come across this priest. And we're gonna read about what happens in the end because it's a sad end to this story. It's a really sad end as we look at this story of the corruption of an entire people. You see, they find Micah, they find the priest and and basically they decide, we're gonna offer the priest an even better offer. And they see that idol, that beautiful silver idol that goes all the way back to the first story. That, that one decision in that household that that mother made, that Micah made, that decision to forget that there's a God and just make this one little idol. And who cares? It's just a little bit outside of the boundaries. What could it matter? Who could it hurt? Well, we see it hurt not only their household, then it corrupted an entire religious system. And now in this story, we see it eventually corrupts the whole people because the tribe of Dan, they come in and they see this idol and they take it. And they give the priest an even better offer. And he agrees to go with them because they say to him, you know, you, you can stay here and just have this little job overseeing this little ministry here in this one household. Or you could come and be the priest for an entire tribe. And so he takes it. Why? Because he's not driven by conviction. He's not driven by what God's telling him to do because he forgot that there's a God. And instead he follows his own way and he takes it because he's driven by corruption and wealth and prestige and power. And so he goes. Well, I wanna show you how this story ends. We're gonna look at some different endings to this story. You see the first sad ending is in verse 19, chapter 18. Be quiet and come with us, they said. Be a father and priest to all of us. Isn't it better to be a priest for an entire tribe and a clan of Israel than for the household of just one man? And so he does it and he takes them up on it. A sad ending for this priest, a sad ending for God's people. Verse 24, what do you mean? What's the matter, Micah replied. You've taken away all the gods I have made and my priest and I have nothing left. How incredibly sad is that? A man named after God's own name. Who is like God? To which the response is no one. This is his very name. And this man at the end of his life 
as everything that he's put his faith and his trust in is stripped away in the end. They take away his security. They take away his system. And what are his words? You've taken away all the gods I've made and I have nothing left. How sad. A challenge to us, dear friends, because that could be each one of us too. How easy is it to put our faith in things except the one true God, to put our faith in material possessions, to put our faith in a job, to put our faith even in a family, to put our faith in a government. You see, we put our faith in anything less than the one true living God and it's an idol. And idols will always take from you and leave you broken. And in the end, we'll be just like Micah. I have nothing left. How sad because... He had a king, he had everything, but he forgot it. The next sad ending, verse 30. They set up the carved image and they appointed Jonathan, son of Gershom, son of Moses, as their priest. This family continued as priest for the tribe of Dan until the exile. So Micah's carved image was worshiped by the tribe of Dan as long as the tabernacle of God remained at Shiloh. This is a shocking verse because in this verse, what we find out is that this priest, this wandering, gutless, spineless priest who chases money and prestige over honor and conviction in God is none other than Moses' grandson. And so my friends, we see how quickly faith can be lost in a community. In two generations, we go from the one who beheld the one true living God, who heard his voice, who looked upon him, to Micah, who's just given in to the culture around him. And so for us, I think this is incredibly important. We can't miss this because I think we can sit in our seats and say, that's not gonna be us. That's not gonna be New City. We're not gonna be the ones to forget. We're gonna be the ones to hold fast to the faith. But you know what? The world is a strong place. It's powerful. Every day you leave here, you go out into a world that tells you a story that's the story of a forgotten God that says, you know what? You just store up your wealth. You just get your security. You take what's yours. You believe in your truth. You find your answers in here and you just live it out and all will be well. And it's nothing but a bunch of lies. And in two generations, if Moses could, if his family could lose the faith, so can we. And that's what I think Jesus means when he says, we have to pick up our cross daily and follow him. What does that mean? means that every single day we wake up as Jesus followers, we make a decision to follow him, to remember there's a king, to remember we're not the arbiters of right and wrong, to remember we have to reject all the idols of the world lest they leave us broken and dead. You see, idols take and leave us broken, but there's a God who gives and never leaves us. Amen. Friends, I want to invite us to remember today as we look at these stories and look in the mirror for a few minutes today. 
I want you to remember that there's a true king and he's broken into the world and that he's coming to take what is his. All of the creation, all of his people. And you know, when he comes, he's not gonna drive a grand marquee and pick up your bicycle and put it in the back. When he comes, he's coming as the conquering king and he's coming soon. So as we think about that reality, I wanna invite us to remember the oldest confession there is. And it sounds so simple and yet so powerful because it stands against all the powers and principalities and stories of the world and darkness. It's just three words. Jesus is Lord. Jesus is Lord. Jesus is Lord. And when we confess that, we reject our self-rule. We reject our broken strategies. We reject our preferences and our comfort. And we instead choose to gaze upon the one true God who gave everything for us that we might know him. That we might have life and have it to the full. That you might have everything you always dreamed of and wanted deep down. Well, friends, the way I think out of this problem for us is confession. And I wanna invite us, and maybe you didn't know this, but we're entering into a season of confession. Now that's not the season that the, the culture tells us. This is the season of Christmas of Santa Claus and candy canes and elf on a shelf and, and joy to the world. But this is the season of Advent in the historic ancient tradition of our faith. And the season of Advent is a season of darkness. It's a season that we remember that the world is a dark place, that we are utterly lost and we're broken, that our strategies don't work, that our ideas of right and wrong will kill us. And we remember because something's coming at the end. Because the light has broken into the darkness. And the darkness cannot overcome it. And so dear friends, as we begin this Advent season, I wanna invite us as a way of responding to worship today to, to enter into a time of confession together. And we're gonna do this in two parts because uh, uh, repentance involves two movements. We have to turn away from something, turn away from our broken strategies, whatever those are for, for you, because we all have them. Something that you're depending on besides God, something you're placing your faith in, besides the one true living God whose name is Jesus. We turn away from that and then we turn toward him. And so there's two movements to this act of repentance and we're gonna do them today. And as we do that, I'm gonna ask that the house lights come down as a visceral, visual reminder of the darkness of the world around us, that as we leave this place, we go back as a people in exile into a land of darkness, lest we forget there's one true God. He is our King and his name is Jesus. I'm just gonna read some of these confessions. I'm gonna read them slowly. If one of them penetrates your heart and resonates with you, I just wanna invite you. We're gonna have a little bit of silence that you can just confess before God. You can confess that you've forgotten him. You can confess that in your home or maybe your work or maybe in our church or in a relationship that you've forgotten him and that you've placed your hope in something else. It's okay. He hears you. He doesn't want you to leave here today with any more baggage, any guilt or shame or failed attempts to cover up. You don't have to do that. For the ways we idolize money and security, we turn from greed to generosity. 
for the ways we chase after idols that overpromise and underdeliver, for the ways we have spoken words that hurt others, for the ways we defend our sin with excuses and blame, for the ways we allow our culture to direct our hearts and minds, for the ways our lips say one thing, but our hearts say something else, for the ways we have overlooked the needs of others. And as Gabe mentioned, we turn from the darkness and turn towards the light. So as a, as a posture, will, we, will you stand? And we're going to make these declarations together as a community, as individuals. So let's read these returnings together. Lord, we return to you and fix our eyes on the glory of forgiveness as displayed on the cross. We turn from greed to generosity. We turn from the veneer of idolatry to the worship of the one true God. We turn from darkness to light. We turn from the way of selfishness to the way of sacrifice and self-giving. We turn to you, Lord Christ, our source of everlasting joy, hope, peace, and forgiveness. Amen. Amen. So we're going to respond together by singing a, a song of confession called Return. Father, we kneel down And we are honest Lord, we have broken Every promise Despite our failures Your love is faithful You will not turn takes away the sins of the world we return to you you are the one who died set us free and to bring us to life we return we return to Your spirit is moving. 
Friends, in the same way that one bad decision, forgetting the one true God, corrupted a household, that corrupted a community, that corrupted a people, in the same way, one decision to turn away from the ways of the world and to turn to the one true living God whose name is Jesus, who offers forgiveness, who offers life without end, who offers grace upon grace to you. One decision, one decision today can change a family, can change a church, can change a whole people, because that's how God works in his great mystery. So I just want to invite you to the gravity of this moment because there's somebody here today that, that you heard something from the living God today that you, you felt that twinge of conviction and you know that you need to turn away from false idols that'll just leave you broken and dying and you need to turn back to the living Lord Jesus. And if that's you, even if it's just a small voice, I, I wanna encourage you today, don't leave this room without doing something about it because this might be the moment that your family changes. This might be a moment that God breathes something new into our church family. This might be a moment that God generations from now does something beautiful and big and powerful for his name that you can't even imagine because of a decision you made today in this room. So if you've never met the Lord Jesus and you wanna meet him today and you wanna say Jesus is Lord and you want to start an epic journey of following him, I want to invite you to come forward and do that after the service. If you've strayed from him and maybe you've known him, but you've lived life according to your own terms for a long time now, and today, today's the day. You're done. You're done with your broken strategies. And you're ready to turn to him in life. If that's you today, I want to invite you to come. Let, let people with flesh on put their hands on you and pray with you. Mark this day. What an honor and a joy it is to worship together. Would you extend your hands and receive a blessing as you leave? Now may the love of the Father, the precious, beautiful love of the Father, who made you and loves you and knows you and longs for you to follow him. May, may the grace of the Son, the one who came and died in your place, who knows your name, who wants you to follow him and to pour out his grace and mercy upon you. And may the fellowship of the Holy Spirit, the one who promises not to leave us, but to walk with you, may all of those be with you today and every day. And may you go in peace as you love and serve the Lord. Amen. Amen.